0: Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. I am your host, and I am here today with my friend Steve Aronson. Steve, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. I'm so glad you're here.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: (laughs) We are here in San Jose, Costa Rica and the reason i point out where we are is because i'm very excited to bring your story to my audience because if anyone has visited costa rica if anyone has passed either in or out of the airport or practically anywhere in this country or many other uh, latin american countries they have seen the brand cafe brit coffee gift shops all uh, cafes and you've expanded far beyond that and that is your business baby uh you are the founder of cafe brit and so i'm so glad to be able to bring a little bit of your story to radical personal finance thank you for being here
1: well thanks for
0: the for the introduction (laughs) so i would like to go back uh, a good number of decades you as i understand it are not originally from costa rica you weren't born and raised here is that right Nope. where where did you grow up and you
1: grew up in new york city in the bronx and then uh a little bit later, in high school, I lived in Connecticut. Okay. Uh, most most people sort of, parent, when parents make some money, they want to go to the suburbs. Right. And uh, and then I uh, wanted to get out of the East Coast, so I went to school in the University of Michigan. Okay. And uh, became uh, an economist and um, always dreamed of traveling. So that's... So I figured that I better learn something that would allow me to travel to warm countries. And uh, so I did an apprenticeship as a coffee taster in New York City. And uh, that's sort of how I ended up. To make a long story short, that's how I ended up in Costa Rica because... um, that time, Costa Rica was sort of considered to be, and I guess it still is considered to some extent to be the uh, the Bordeaux of coffee growing countries. Uh, at that time, in my my travels, what I what I, what I what I became was sort of a quality controller of coffee exports, and then ultimately a buyer for a big. For a big trading company, and uh, but at that time, and I'm talking about the 70s, what we really did was what we were buying were uh, were ingredients, because it's you have to sort of put yourself back past uh, before the era of Starbucks and coffee shops and all that sort of stuff, and think that. At that time, what people thought of as coffee were cans. Cans cans that were made, cans or maybe in instant coffee jars, but they were cans that had a brand. And uh, that's what you knew. You didn't know that came, coffee came from any particular country or anything. You just thought of it as being something that was, that you put milk and sugar in and you, and, um, And also, the other interesting part about it then was that um, marketing for coffee at that time was basically being a loss leader. So, what that meant is that you knew that the housewife, who was the only person who went to the supermarket, right, uh, would have to buy coffee. Mm -hmm. So, So, coffee companies would compete by having a lower price so that they would go to that supermarket to buy everything else because they right. bought because the, the coffee was cheaper because you know, that's something that was like the staple that they had to buy. So, so our job as coffee traders and suppliers of ingredients um, were, and as you know, as a, a coffee trader is also like a, um, a as a, a taster, but also a blender, you know, we, our, our job was to figure out how to allow the the brand to have to have the taste that people wanted in the cheapest, cheapest possible way and that what that means really is understanding the crop cycles of different countries and uh, you know it's coffee is a one- year crop but it it's it's harvested at different times in different places and um, And also you wanted to know about sort of relative pricing of places. So that was sort of the skill that I acquired. Uh, And Costa Rica was a really great place for that because, and that's why I say it was considered to be the Bordeaux, Costa Rica was the place which had, for some reason, had the characteristic of... uh, Producing a coffee that that smelled as good as it tasted, or tasted as good as it smelled, which, if you stop and think about it, is actually pretty rare. Right. You actually think that uh, it really smells good, and then you taste the coffee, you say, "Hey, I better put some milk and sugar, right? In right. It, right?
0: Cover it up." Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so Costa Rica was a pretty cool place like that. And and so, and so people would you know coffee coffee roasters would buy Costa Rican coffee in order to sort of upgrade their blends or to get that smell. We we always thought one of the funnier ones was, you know, was these was the whoosh, you know, you know the whoosh when you open up you, the coffee yeah, can. Yeah. That smell. <laughs> that smells Costa Rican. You see? Right. <laughs> you know, who cares what else right, you right. Want? ah, wow, that really smells good. So so that's sort of what that's sort of what brought me here and what got me, you know, and that's and I became a coffee exporter and a miller and doing you know doing things that that uh you know and, and ended up uh, supplying coffee to people green coffee all over to people all over the world
0: but a question so you were in your early 20s it sounds like you had gone to college studied economics and then you would gotten a job working as a taster yeah for a coffee company so were they sending you to costa rica to be a buyer? No, I sent myself. Okay, so you yeah, went, I, there was an entrepreneurial aspect. Well, oh so yeah, to no, clarify.
1: I I just went. I just I printed a I printed a business. You card. You printed a business card. card you got on an
0: airplane, flew from New York to well, San Jose. To,
1: actually, I, print from, I flew from New York to Mexico and met my wife. Met the okay. lady who became my wife, and and we just started to travel together, and we okay. we ended up we ended up saying here, this is where we want to be. So, How did you
0: meet her? Um.
1: She was sitting on the grass in Mexico talking to a nice-looking lady, and I actually wanted to talk to that lady. Right, and she she sort of bawled me out, and and I was sort of attracted to that and to her personality, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was it was pretty it was it was random. Okay, it was random.
0: I mean, <laughs> so so did you have savings? Were you a penniless, you know, hitchhiker, or did you have some savings no, from your job? No, jobs? I was
1: pretty, I was at about
0: $1,000. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, so this is the 1970s. Yeah. You had $1,000 or so saved.
1: 1973. And you exact, go to yeah. Costa
0: Rica, you print up well, some I go, to Me- I go to Mexico, to Mexico yeah. and then you meet your wife. And, and you- I had I had a business card, and so the first job I got
1: was uh, was as a consultant to the Mexican Coffee Institute. Okay. You know, because I had a business card from New York, right? So that was... Right. Coffee taster, big shot, me. right? <laughs> yeah, and I had a New York, York dress, so they thought that was cool, and uh, yeah, so I worked for the Mexican Coffee Institute for a while, and then uh, and then I then and then since I had already been a an apprentice, you know, I mean, I I had already worked in New York as a coffee taster, and I would worked on the on the exchange, but as a, as but as an apprentice, I mean, that was where I was banking. Eight hundred dollars a a month or something. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, the highest salary I had was twelve was a thousand dollars a month, and it was you know because I was like the low man on the totem pole, he was a young guy, you know. I'd take samples to different coffee trade, coffee trading companies. At that time, the, the the center of the coffee trade was in mm-hmm. Lower Manhattan, where where the South Street Seaport is, Seaport mm-hmm. uh, Mall is right now. That was sort of the center of the. Coffee trading world actually, so um, so yeah. When I so after since I knew companies and they knew you know they knew they knew that I was a cheap guy cheap guy that nobody was doing. um, I ended up uh, getting hired by one of them to to be to be their sort of uh, outside man to, to to check on shipments and ultimately become a buyer and I. I did that and I sort of moved up the totem pole in the company until they wanted to give me a a a real serious promotion and let me go and live in New York and work on the 25th floor of a building and take the subway and live like a normal person and I said nah I think I'll stay here <laughs> which right. is which is where you where you are right now right um you know and uh I, I told the fellow who offered me the job, I said, well, you know, can you give me this lifestyle? <laughs> and he said, no, but you'll live like every, like I do. You know, you have two-week vacations and all sorts of cool stuff <laughs> like that. So, and make a lot of money. Right. So, so yeah, so then I, then I started my own business with two other partners. And it was, and the business at that time, because of the, the situation, the, the the way the industry worked at that time, uh, the, the way for somebody who's starting a business was to do something different. And and there were a lot of people doing things different then, you know, when there were guys that started, you know, the guy who started Pete's in, in Berkeley, you know, or actually in, in Emeryville, but, you know, there was one store and... A couple of hippies from who worked for him went to uh, to to Seattle and started a, started the a coffee shop there. These guys who started a place called Starbucks, mm-hmm. and, and then there was another fella that worked for um, in a in a coffee shop in Los Angeles who started something called Seattle's Best Coffee. And they were all like that. They were all young guys that were that were doing something else that were that were that were selling coffee what it tasted like and where it came from and things like that but they didn't you know they didn't have the training the industry training that i did so so i became a supplier to a lot of those guys
0: so that was our business so when you say supplier you're you're physically here in latin america yeah are you going out to the plantations the farmers and sorting through the green beans and saying, okay, we're going to send these beans to this guy up there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I used to have, I had a motorcycle. I'd go <laughs> go visit people all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I visited every quarter of this country. Sure. That's what, I mean, you didn't only sort the green beans. I would. We would actually buy the cherry. Okay. The, the, which, coffee's the print of a cherry, right? Right, so right. So we'd buy the cherry and then. And then either, I mean, ultimately, I became partners in mills and a couple of mills. But uh, so you
0: you developed your own sources, yeah, of collecting because because the way my understanding of the way the coffee business works, I've spent a total of one day harvesting coffee. It was one of the hardest days' work of my life. Yeah, <laughs> Those okay. guys are amazing, the harvesters. But my understanding is, it seems to me like most of the coffee growers. And maybe it's different today versus how it was, but most of the coffee farms are independent. Guy has his own crop. Then a team of pickers will come through, usually mm-hmm. migrant laborers. They'll pick and then then there seem to be now a good number of co-ops that will, will bring the beans together. Was it that way back then as well? Oh yeah. yeah okay. Absolutely. So more, then you would set up the relationship with the co-op yeah. and come and buy the co-op's beans.
1: Yeah. Or I would have a relationship with a with with a grower and Tell him what co-op to go to. Got it. Because because it's sort of we have this this little saying is that what you do in the coffee mill or in the in the what's called the beneficio can add or subtract two hundred meters from the, co- from the coffee. Because you because the because one of the one of the char- characteristics that you look for in coffee is the height at which it was grown mm-hmm. and you can you can add or subtract height right. <laughs> by the way you treat it after harvest got it so so a lot of what we were doing a lot of what especially since I was supplying or buying coffee for people who really cared about it you know who were selling coffee for you know two two three dollars a cup or eight dollars a pound rather than a dollar ninety nine on sale in um in a supermarket mm-hmm. um they they really knew their stuff, and they they wanted to, and they wanted they really knew what they wanted to buy, and so, so I had to give them the stuff that they wanted to buy. Right. And uh, so yeah, so that was that was sort of the, the expertise that we that 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 that, our, that me and my partners developed at that time. So we, what we do is really translated the expertise of commodity suppliers to uh the expertise of finding the finest coffees and uh and and selling to these oddball guys that mm-hmm. were very very marginal i mean they right. these were very small companies and uh and and sort of oddballs outside of the coffee business right, right. until they became until they the, became coffee, the coffee business, business. Right. yeah
0: whereas now most of people i know i'm the weirdo who i will still on a, buy I, I can still drink a cup of maxwell house or folgers coffee and enjoy it but yeah. i know almost no one who does that at least in my social circles
1: yeah it's it's what's it's it's a very interesting sort of business story because you know because the um the sort of the specialty coffee industry by sort of mid-90s uh, represented about Fifty percent of the dollar volume of the coffee and of, the, of the coffee world, mm-hmm. and in the eighties it represented like one wow. percent, right? So and and so and the fifty percent that they took it they could, took it from companies like General Foods and Nestle and Procter and Gamble. I mean, so the so here are these gigantic companies who didn't weren't looking out the window, right? Or oh, weren't, weren't right. looking in the back in the in the in the rear view mirror of their car because it was just coming right at it, right? So no, it's, it's sort of the it's sort of the beginning of disruption, right of the of the small of the small company with the the guy in the or the you know app the apples of the it was sort of the apples of the coffee industry right. in a certain way. Um, so that's so that so that then it sort of occurred to me that it was probably a good idea to uh, to start to do that here, and um, well, I'll just tell you a little. Anecdote which I always think is sort of cool is I, it's um, when I was 40, I went back to college and took my whole family to, to California, went to Stanford for a year, and uh, and was in, and the, the goal was to get a ma- get a master's in agricultural economics because I thought, well, I should really understand a bit more about what I was doing, and um. And so and so we bought a house in Palo Alto. Um, and then we decided then we decided to remodel the kitchen. And as we were guy who came, we remodeled it to do to do the work, the guy, the plumber actually, who put in the, the sink, uh, asked me, well, What would I do? And I said, Well, yeah, I'm in the coffee business. He said, Well, you know, I really like Ethiopian Yirgacheffe, but sometimes I blend it with Kenya, this and I said, whoa this guy's (laughs) a plumber (laughs) right (laughs) i said there's something going on here you know there's another conception of what coffee is and so you know so that was so when i came back i said well i think i should start to do that (laughs) i think you start to start to think about what these what my customers are doing Mm -hmm. you know and um and at that time, also Costa Rica was was getting on the map because Oscar Arias won the Nobel Peace Prize. Right, and there was peace in Central America, and people wanted to go to a place that was peaceful. And people were starting to become conscious that that coffee some some sort of a cool thing, and so they so here's a place that's peaceful, has nice weather and coffee grows here right uh well maybe we should start to give them the type of coffee that they think is really good and they're buying in the states you know and that's and that's sort of how Caffey brit started so it really started as a as a as a small subsidiary of a coffee trading company that was supplying green or that is unroasted coffee to coffee roasters sort of specialty coffee roasters around the world. So it was like a little little tiny, you know, we had a little tiny roaster, and we did that. We, we roasted coffee for hotels and places where tourists went. And, and, uh, and then it just started to grow because really our customer base started to grow. And, and really, I guess what really Gave it its first big push was what I was telling you earlier was mail order, mm-hmm. and, which was at that time was mail order. You actually sent stuff by mail and people sent you a fax or sent you a a, a letter in what's called snail mail now mm-hmm. with a check in it <laughs> and said, and then you'd put the coffee, you put coffee in, in in an envelope or in a box and take it to the mail, take it to the post office and send it to them. That was mail order. And uh, then we realized that in Costa Rica, we, um, if we took the coffee to the post office, the post office would try to figure out how to send it to the United States. And this is a Latin American country, so it took them a couple of weeks to figure that out. And so what we figured out is that once they figured out that, they would take it to the airport, and uh, and 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 send it as a package. And we and so then we went to the post office and said, "Well, what if we become like a, a subsidiary of the post office, and you can give us a, a stamp machine, and we'll take it to the airport ourselves?" And the post office said, "Nobody's ever told us that before." And uh, and then they said yes. So so all of a sudden we cut two weeks out of the out of the trip. Right. Because we. We we just somebody said we want coffee. We just took it to the airport and sent it to them. Um, and then the internet came, and then mail order became became online ordering and e-commerce, and we ended up with a warehouse in Miami, so that then people really could get their coffee within a day of the day when they ordered it, right? And and that uh, that was that was sort of the beginning of. So little by little, I got out of the green coffee supplying business and uh, and started uh, the coffee roaster and, uh, and we and that coffee roasting company um, also became sort of a traditional specialty coffee roaster, which meant that we got the representation of espresso machine companies and. And uh, commercial, commercial grinder and, and brewer company. So we would go to hotels and say, "Here you go. You got your coffee. You have your machines. We'll put the little coffee maker in the rooms and and, uh, and and all those things that that didn't exist because this was a country which was in which the tourism industry was just starting, and so so we were at the ground floor of that and. Uh, And the end of it is the story that you, that you just, that you started this whole thing about is that, uh, they, uh, they started to privatize the air. They first started to privatize the airport here. And in, and that happened in all sorts of other countries in, in Latin America. And, uh, and we, um, we set up stores in, in the airports, in, in the airport here. And, uh, and became part of that industry of what's called travel retail, mm-hmm. um, which, in effect, again, it's 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 a, it's sort of a luck thing because, as in the specialty coffee industry, we happen to be around at the ground floor, right? And the same thing happened with travel retail. That is, that uh, travel retail really started to develop seriously as the airport business became a lot more than just planes flying in. It became sort of malls, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and when that, when that, when the sort of the ground services became more and more important, you know, now you have lounges and you have all sorts of, all sorts of things, not very, you know, you have uh, spas and churches and all sorts of things at airports, Um, you know, we think of this as being the normal thing, but that was very new. I mean, the right. first place it did that was Dubai and everybody, and people would go to Dubai to watch it, to look at it, right. you know, say, wow. <laughs> right. There's all these things you can do in the airport. But but it, it really became important um, as international tourism grew and as countries began to realize that they really couldn't run airports as well as airport operators could mm-hmm. and uh, they, they found out that when they gave the airport when the contract to airport operator the government actually made more money and uh, and the airport operators realized that they have real estate that they can use and they have uh, a captive audience in the real estate so they had the best mall in the world because people didn't have to go you didn't have to you didn't have to ask them to come they were there anyway
0: right and they were there with an hour on their hands, and and uh, and they're probably affluent buyers who are traveling. You know, most people who travel are probably more affluent than than many non-travelers. And Brit has become a powerhouse of a brand. I mean, it maybe it began in in Costa Rica, but I've even in the airports. I think, um, I see, I've seen it in Colombia. Yep. I have seen it in Mexico. Right. Um. Where else have I? I mean, what, Peru, Chile, Peru. Yep. Yep. I saw it in Europe, Peru. Hawaii. Yeah, and so, like, all over the place. And mm-hmm. um, so it's just mm-hmm. become a, an amazing brand. Now, I want to go back for a second, because at this point, your children are involved in the business. Yeah, my um, And so I want to go back. So your wife was originally from Europe. From France, right? yeah. From France. Uh-huh. And you met uh-huh. in Mexico, mm-hmm. and she said, hey, I'll come along on this adventure together with you. And you've built this together, and you have five children. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that I think is so fascinating is being here in Costa Rica, your wife saw the need for your children to have a high-quality education, but she, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, she was a little frustrated with some of the options available, so she began the European school right. here in yeah. Costa Rica. But Tell she me was more edu- about that.
1: She was already an educator. I okay. mean, she'd already, she came from a family of educators, her parents, her parents had a school, and she grew up in... So a, she grew
0: up in her parents' school okay yeah and so the idea of starting a school was not a scary thing for her it was no
1: that... no and i met her in mexico she was actually in in sort of a uh a seminar she was in a one-year seminar about education so yeah so she she'd been she she was already professional in that in that area or had that had those had the, those skills and that vision and uh you know she waited until the kids were old enough to go to school because we had five kids some of them were Pretty little, they they were, they were at school age. But yeah, she started the school with uh, at a, at a house with, you know, with with a couple of kids and
0: three but of them. Today, it's ours. one of the leading private schools. Yeah. Here in in Costa Rica, yeah, right? it was
1: pretty much the the first all IB school, and uh, it's bi trilingual, and it's you know it's there's pretty much a waiting list to get in. There are five hundred and some odd kids in the school. Um, but it was not that when it started mm-hmm. it was when it started it was uh it was pretty close to one one room schoolhouse it was a ho- it was actually a house that we bought that uh one the the bedroom was second grade and another room was third was first grade and there was a little ba- there was a little patio outside and that was the play around, playground and that was that was the school.
0: So you taught. Uh, so your children matriculated through the school, the, the international school that your wife oversaw. Then did they go to university in the United States, here in Costa Rica, in Europe? How did they handle their educational they all, process? All of that. All of that. Okay. Yeah,
1: there's one that went to Europe, two that went to the United States, one, 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 one that went to Costa Rica, one who sort of went from okay. place to place. Yeah, there were all there was all of the above.
0: Okay. So what was your philosophy as a father and an entrepreneur towards the involvement of your children in your family businesses?
1: Well, it wasn't, I don't know if I sat sat down and had a philosophy, nor did my wife, wife, but it was, there was, uh, two of my children had a, a very natural connection to the school. Mm-hmm. And you know everybody is every everybody's different because one of our chi- one of our children went and studied in France and is there you know and had and no natural connection to any of the things that we're doing except to the family so uh, so I think that uh, it's it, it it's it, there was there's something organic here that went on because. For example, I, one of my one of my sons, who now is in now is one of the two sons that are running the company. I remember when he was eleven or twelve, he said, uh, "I just want to carry someone. He was he's a very strong guy, and he said, "I want to carry one of these these bags. These are sixty nine kilo bags that people that that coffee." He says, "And then when I get older, I'll do more sophisticated stuff." You know, so he was really and the other and the other son also worked worked in coffee mills and ended up working, ended up being a Budistead Starbucks on Times Square, which was at that time the, the Starbucks that sold <laughs> the most, that had most traffic of any, of any Starbucks, you know. And uh, so they, they ended up, uh, it, without, without us doing very much or pushing them in any particular direction, two of them, were attracted to the school world, and two of them were attracted attracted to the coffee world, and uh, so they ended up running things. Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of the it uh, it 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 became fairly natural for that to take place.
0: Do you think so? I would say back then, right, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, without question, Costa Rica would have qualified as, I guess, what maybe you would have called a frontier market in college, something like that. I don't think it qualifies that today. I mean, I don't think of this as much of a frontier market. But do you think that your children, how would you, how do you think your children's experience was growing up here in Costa Rica as compared to if you had, stayed in the United States or if you and your family had gone to France or to some other kind of place. Do you how do you think their experience compared
1: well it, first of all, you know, they they grew up around, I would say that my wife and I are both entrepreneurs. We both we both sort of defined our lives, you know, and 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 I have a feeling that if you grow up in the States, it's harder to find your life. It's harder to find your life in, a, in, you know, you, you end up either, either you're working for somebody else or you're working for yourself, but there's, there's, there's lots of, there are lots of rules and there are lots of rules that are written or unwritten that, uh, and, and maybe rules is a, is, is, is a, is a very, is a, is, is a very restrictive term, but it, 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 sort of, um, sort of a lot of things have already been invented, <laughs> you know, whereas, whereas as you, the word that used frontier market, you know, where you are is you can, you can invent things. I mean, you know, my wife invented a school. <laughs> she just, she didn't, she didn't go and buy somebody else's school or, open up a book and say, well, this is how the school should be. She said, well, here, this is how I want the school to be. This is the curriculum that I want. And she actually wrote the curriculum. And these are the things that I, and nobody, nobody got in their way in doing that, you know, and and uh, sort of the same thing that happened with with us. So so I think that we were lucky to be, as you say, in the frontier in in a world where, or in a, in a country where everything hadn't already been established, and also, and and I think I have to be fair about this. Also, we're in a world without YouTube, because these days you could sort of have an idea, and if you don't have the idea, you could look on YouTube. But somebody else has that idea and has put it on YouTube, or or put it on the internet. Uh, so he so had that, that advantage of being able to have an idea and turn it into something and, and be an innovator in that, in that sense. So I think, and, and, you know, my children are no longer children. They're in their late 30s and 40s. So they, they grew up still in that world of, that, that, with that level of freedom now obviously there's, there's another level of there's another whole level of freedom now which is very hard for me to understand completely understand what what how one would operate in it you know which has to do with the fact that information's free and that uh, that you can you can end up having an idea and then finding out best practices in by just looking on your telephone
0: when you think about So I think a lot about family wealth and legacy, right? I have four children and I think about how do I train them in such a way that they have abundant opportunities, but so that they identify with the family enterprise. I used to think, oh, the way to go is just that children have to do it all themselves, right? They start off from scratch and they do it all themselves. and then I realized that I was really wrong about that. So you want to kind of balance a healthy mix of, of here. Mm-hmm. We're here to support you. Yeah. You don't have to come and work in the family business. You're free to go to France and build your own career, as one of your children had, has done. You're not under, under restraint. But in your case, you've built this powerful family legacy that two of your children are involved with the European school, two of your children are involved with Café Brit, as I understand it, you you you've you've ceded the, most of the operating control over to them, and so this can continue to be a powerful brand. And you said that your children have massively grown the brand even beyond what it was when you were running everything, right? Sure, absolutely. So, do you ha- what advice do you have from your perspective for a young father about how to cultivate and and kind of inculcate a culture of of family identity with your children?
1: Well, one thing is, I've never, never really thought through that. I've never thought of that question before. I haven't, I haven't given, given that as much thought as that, because cause we didn't sit down and, and write a, a series of rules. But I guess the first thing I think about is that um, we are a family. That is... Everything we were doing, the our children knew about, and were were very much aware about it. Now, and and so, the the um, the border between business or work and life was was very very was was very porous. You know, I uh, I can imagine somebody who comes home from work at night. And they say, you know, how's work, Daddy? And he says, Let's turn on the TV or something else. That is that that or he tries to explain what it is, but what is that that doesn't really mean very much to a young kid. Whereas in our case, if you know, you're now running the school where you went as a went as a child, you actually Knew what was going on, and if at the dinner table, you know, your your mom was talking about hiring, needing to hire an English teacher, and and those teachers actually lived at the house. We generally, what she generally did was when a teacher came from abroad before working in the school, we'd invite them to, to stay over. So you got to know them, and some of them stayed over and then didn't end up being in the school, in the school too. Right. Uh, so, and then, you know, if, if my older children, you know, they'd see, they'd see me, they, their coffee trees right around the house and, uh, and there's a warehouse down at the end of the road and they, you know, they, uh, they, they grew up around what we were doing. And so, so I guess that's, I guess that's a long way of saying, yeah, we were a family for 24 hours a day. Is, there was there were was, there weren't aspects of our lives that were not shared with with our kids. So, um, and and I don't and and there wasn't it wasn't anything that we imposed on them. But if you think about, you know history, <laughs> think about what people did in the Middle Ages or people did in the, the front and think about the front, the American frontier, you know, that, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. People grow up and, you know, somebody take care of the, somebody built cows and you know, they helped, help dad out in the farm and, or, or if they, you know, if they're pioneers and going across the, going across the country, there, there wasn't, it wasn't that, that, that strong borderline between work and, uh, between work and life. Which is also, you know, a little. If I have a, one philosophy, is that 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 this idea of retirement this, this is a very strange concept. It doesn't sort of like, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to live once I finish working, you know, at the age, and that's usually when people die. <laughs> so,
0: so that's a, that's an appropriate transition. I was next going to ask you. Um, One of the taglines of Radical Personal Finance is how to build a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. Mm -hmm. And as a former financial advisor, I've spent a lot of time talking to people about retirement. Many people have an ambition to someday accumulate enough wealth that they can choose to work if they want to, but not because they have to. I think it's safe to say you've been financially successful, that you can choose the kinds of work that you do. And you've passed over operational control of Café Brit to your children. You're not involved in the day-to-day activities. From your perspective now, having reached financial freedom and thinking about your life now and your life along that journey, what lessons have you learned that would be helpful to a younger guy like me about financial freedom and retirement. What's great about it? What's difficult about it? How your life changes about it? What lessons do you have for someone like me?
1: Well, as I said before, I don't, I don't believe in retirement. So I don't, in other words, I, I just think that you have, you have phases in your life and you, you just have to, you want, you want to optimize your lifestyle or your life experience in those different phases—that's all. And so, so I uh, yeah, and that is—I didn't invent that. I mean, the Greeks did. You know? So it's not a. Um, and I guess uh, I've never really thought about financial freedom. As 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 a goal, so uh, that is that. Uh, I've all I and my wife, both of us, we've always sort of lived within our means. So that is whatever we whatever whatever hap- whatever we happen to have as an income, especially since we were both building businesses, which meant that we, you know, we had a piece of land and we it was always mortgaged. For example, um, it but. It, it's it's partially because um we're really lucky to 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 not have to uh it, when, when I think about you know people who who pay five thousand dollars for two room apartment in New York so one one and a half room apartment in New York City or because uh, they because they want to be live whether they want to live in New York city or people who who uh who right now you know are are have to really think about saving that uh, that last bit of money, you know, it, because because cost of living is so high. Uh, whereas you know, we're we're living on a farm and and we bought it 45 years ago when you could do that. Mm-hmm. So 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 there so there's never so there hasn't ever been a serious issue about saying, well, if we save up enough, then we don't have to work anymore because there is a sort of a, a continuum of what, of, of activities that we're doing. And that's, so what is, what what does that mean in terms of advice for you? Uh, I don't think I can give you any advice considering what you said the the way you're, the way you're considering living your life. I think that you're, you're thinking about living your life. If, if I was, if I was your age now, I would probably do what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, you don't want to be, you certainly don't want to, you want to be able to be the author of your own book, right? You don't want to have other, other people or other organizations telling you what you, what you're doing. You want, and you want to be the, and you want, and maybe not even the author of your own book, maybe the, uh, the journalists of your own newspaper, because you're going to, you're going to be doing investigative journalism all of your, all of your life. You know, right. you're, you're going to be looking for lo- looking and being, and, and enjoying discovering things that you, that you, you feel that you want to be involved in and, uh, rejecting things you don't want to be involved in. So, and if you're, as you told me that you were, um, that you lived in a, in a house trailer with all your kids for and traveled around the united states for for a while you know i i I think that you also have that idea that there that 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 line between your work life and your life life is not doesn't exist yeah. so i th- I think that probably if, I, if I'm thinking about one bit of advice or one one thing that I think was successful for us is is never drawing that line.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things that I love the most about my current lifestyle. Um, My wife and I are with our children 168 hours a week, right? Mm -hmm. Um, One of us is. And uh, I'm not sure that we'll always do that. I think there are very good reasons to enroll a child in a school, Um, many good reasons to encourage children to, um, you know, Pursue their own things that might be physically mm-hmm. separate, uh, I don't believe that one hundred and sixty eight hours a week is the standard, but I do love I really love being able to have that kind of integrated life because it feels it feels very natural and right. like this is how our forebears for millennia have lived. right children haven't been sent off away from dad and mom. There's always been an integrated family life, an integrated village life. An integrated mm-hmm. life where there is intergenerational sharing and transfer, and um, teaching, and and social interaction, and uh, it's something I, I value very greatly. Um, well, I, I as you know, there's go a ahead. Thing, there's, there's
1: a, I was thinking about something that you know I read a long time ago, which is a pretty pretty simple. The aphorism it says, "If you if you if you follow your passions for work, you'll never work a day in your life." Mm-hmm. So then that's
0: yeah I feel that way and, and even as an entrepreneur it's interesting the comment you made earlier about kind of the choice between well you can go to New York City and you can make X number of hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and work on the 25th floor and have two weeks of vacation and you said I'm in a frontier market right I'm an entrepreneur I can enjoy a really interesting integrated lifestyle I'm on my motorcycle traveling all around Costa Rica visiting coffee mills and I don't have to account for every moment of every day. I work hard, but I have a lifestyle where I'm not on the clock in that sense. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I'm not as wealthy as you are. I'm a good bit younger. But because of being an entrepreneur, I am enjoying in many ways a very similar lifestyle to you as an experienced, wealthy person. I won't use the word retiree, but what a lot of people would say, oh, this person is retired in the sense that doesn't run this one active business. You're involved in many things. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the power of entrepreneurship, right? You can write your own ticket, and you can enjoy from the age of 25 to the age of 75, you can enjoy that sense of control in a more relaxed and appropriate pace of your life. If when you take responsibility for your business and for your life, and you know, if it's to be, it's up to me, like, I got to make it happen, that also comes with it, the reward of being able to have a more integrated lifestyle and more enjoyable days, at least in my experience.
1: I, I think you've you've summarized it better than I could have.
0: So, <laughs> so here's here's <clears throat> my, my final question. <clears throat> I believe the strategies that you have used are very powerful strategies for other people to consider. <laughs> uh, and I'll just identify them. I don't think they're right for everybody, but I think they're strategies that are good for other people to consider. So for example, leaving the country of one's birth and going to another place can often help someone to be an exotic foreigner which comes with it a certain amount of of benefit of prestige, right? Your wife could be the exotic French woman who's opening the European school and while she may have the exact same qualifications as a native born Costa Rican in Costa Rica, she'll have a little bit of that exotic ability from her being abroad, um, similar for you uh, being the U.S. American businessman working here. There are downsides to it as well, but you get some more valuable access. And then I think also when you go to a frontier market, a lot of times you have less competition. If you had been in that New York City office, there would have been lots and lots of people competing for that because there's lots of, of, of candidates. But here you had fewer competitors um, competing for the exact thing. And so, mm-hmm. I frequently recommend to, to you know, if a young guy wants to go and make his fortune, I say, take a corner of the world that you're interested in, go and check it out, and see what opportunities come along the way. And you may look back later and say, I was really lucky because of this trend of the coffee growing and whatnot. And you were, right? But the reality is you saw something happening and you took advantage of it. And I believe that, well, I don't know what those opportunities are for me right now or for someone else we can be open to them and looking for them. So here's my question. If you were starting over again today, you know, young 25-year-old guy, something like that, what are some of the regions and or industries that you have noticed that you think, you know what, I bet there's some opportunity there, some of the countries, some of the regions, and some of the industries that you think would be worth checking out and investigating?
1: Well, I mean... industry parts uh, it's not going to sound very original but it, I think that it's really it's it's really important to think about two things you think about anything to do with with climate change or circular economy or, or things like that and you want to think about uh, things that have to do with people you know it um, there's this there that one of my sort of mentor got, mentors said you know you want to if everybody's walking north, you better walk. You should start walking south because one day they're going to end up there. So you know uh, the 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 standard thing to say is, well, the future is all about tech. It's all about it's all about algorithms. It's all about artificial intelligence. It's all about robotics and stuff like that. And uh, and I think that there's there's going to be a lot of opportunities of things that have to do with high touch. With things that have to do with you know it's, I have a theater <laughs> things that have to do with uh with you know with with instead of ordering stuff online, having a restaurant a, a restaurant or a cafe where 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 you don't take an ipad and and order things, but you actually talk to somebody um so you know so that there's just examples, but I think that Evan, as I said before uh anything to do and I, and i i think that it's it's more interesting to think about things that have to do with circular economy than to say well i'm going to plant more what, trees what do you have, mean
0: circular economy
1: uh not throwing stuff out okay so figuring out figuring out figuring out ways to use stuff that people think should be thrown out got it or, or use or or being able to maximize resources in other mm. ways, you know, lots of things you can do with petroleum right. are they're not are right. not that's not burning it. You know, we we have an economy that has to do which is you know it's linear. You know, we 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 get we make stuff and then we throw it out. Right. And the more stuff we can make and more stuff we can throw out, the more the GMP grows. Mm-hmm. Well, that isn't the it's way. It's, right. That isn't the way it's going to be. Right. Absolutely. You know, not. I, I'm, not, I'm not even putting any moral. More no. a label on it. It just doesn't make sense. Structures. It may, it so you may
0: serve you for a time, but it doesn't make sense in the long run.
1: Yeah, and and that isn't and that isn't where we're going. And that isn't and that's probably the only thing that that artificial intelligence and and all this handling of instra- information is telling you that you can you can you can you can optimize the use of resources, um, and find all sorts of other uses to resources mm-hmm. than then, uh, then, than then just throwing them out. So. Those are the two things that I would that I would focus on. I think.
0: Are there any particular regions or countries oh, regions. of the world that are interesting to you? Or that would be in the way that I laid it out?
1: Well uh, well, you know, this is this is gonna get it into sort of personal, <laughs> you know, personal preferences, right? So that I mean it's... It, and you know, I you could put it two ways, right? You know, there there are people who really like risk and, and there's probably a lot a good return if you if you can if you can handle a lot of risk. Uh and uh, but if you're gonna have a family, you sort of want to look the other way. You wanna be in a place where which is which is relative which is which is relatively safe, which has a which has a co social social contract that's working. Um and uh, and maybe that they end up being places that have actually had a war and and are, and are now and are now recovering from it because they know and I was uh, you know we were talking earlier about former Yugoslavia mm-hmm. and uh, Bosnia may be a place like that you know right. um, but but there's other places that have had a war and have haven't haven't figured it out yet the was a good example of that of, mm-hmm. of a place that it, it went through a very nice period of of saying well you were tired of having wars and then literally things, they have, they, things are things are going up again so so it, that but that that was a little that's a little little side a little side thing but i but I, but i i do think that or you know i was going to say i was pretty impressed with i did a um i was sort of hired as a as a consultant in rwanda for a while to take a look at Take a look at the coffee industry there, mm-hmm. and um, and I was really surprised at how well things worked in Rwanda. Um, one of the things that they, one of the first things that I saw was I went to a uh, to this to the Rwandan uh, agency that, that that handles foreign investors, and and the lady the lady sent me down, and she said, I really want to apologize because um, it only t- it takes six hours. For you to start a company and start and do all the steps to start a business, we've really wanted to get it down to two, but we haven't been able to do that. And uh, you know, all the offices were in the you know the three. It was three-story building. You could do everything you needed to do to start a company. So it takes about in Costa Rica. It takes about two years, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> minimum, and a lot of help. Right, you know. right, right. So. And in the United States, it takes a while too it right. ta- and it costs you a lot of money per hour, you know right. to people so um uh, so Rwanda may not be a really good example right now because it's gone through it's it's recently gone through a lot of a lot of problems, but I would that you know I'd sort of look at that list then there's those those lists are all published about mm-hmm. how how easy it is to start a business
0: right
1: and that would be another you know so that i I'd, i instead of so I pointing to individual countries i'd look at those types of characteristics i'd look at you know a social contract that that seems to be working uh that there is some um, that there's some level of of uh, of safety and uh and and that it is and that the whatever it is, the government or whatever the or or even the the culture, because sometimes it's not the government; it's culture that says that's 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 friendly to people from outside who have ideas.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm saying that because you know you have there are cultures which which think that it's really a bad idea to make money. You know, mm-hmm. so that's, that's sort of it's sort of contrary to their to their thinking. Or they're cultures that have very very strong elites, and say, you know, I just want to keep it. If anybody wants to try to make money, well,
0: it's just going to be us. Oh. Yeah.
1: So, so that's why I, that's that's why I'm saying that it's not only the rules and regulations; it's also the cultures. Yeah. So you put that in some sort of a. <laughs> you put you have to you have to put that in in. in in some some sort of uh, a, a sieve and sort of look through it, and, and you'll probably some countries might pop out. You know, Estonia might pop out, or Bosnia might pop out, or Mongolia. Mongolia probably won't pop out, but uh, it could. <laughs> right. It could. It, right. Uh, but um, you know, Georgia may do that too. The only pro the the only problem. Is I'm, you know I'm talking about ex-communist countries. Problem is that you that you do have uh, in some of these places. You have some really strong elites, new, uh, new elites that really mm-hmm. that have they haven't quite got as good as old elites, but they're getting there.
0: Right, you know? right. So no, I I agree. I think that it's one of the things that makes me a little sad about our home country, United States. It just feels like sometimes there's been so much success that just feels to me like the way that we got there has been kind of forgotten about, but I often don't get that same experience and sense in a place that remembers pretty recently how rough things were. It's like, well, we, we did that socialism thing. Uh, That was pretty rough. We're pretty glad now to have this opportunity that we have. And um, it feels like those memories are a little fresher and it inspires more confidence, more of a desire to work hard, more of an op- appreciation of opportunity than sometimes I, I sense in some of the other places that uh, that we're from.
1: Yeah, and it's it, it's it changes, right? I was going to, you know, what you just said occurs to me that that an experience that we had in Cafe Brit is that you know we we opened this uh, representative office in the EU, and you know where it is, it's in Riga, Latvia, yeah. and. Uh, and it's it was it's it was it was quite successful. It was quite successful because of our partner, mm-hmm. who was an entrepreneur, who uh, who actually made his money by um, by building gym equipment by by importing gym equipment, and uh, you know, right when the wall came down, mm-hmm. he said, "I got to find something. There's there's got to be some some things that are going to happen here that didn't happen before," and he 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 somehow. Came on the idea of gyms and hotels, and uh, you know he noticed that in the West people that all the all hotels had you know, mm-hmm. um, machines in them. So he got the representation for machines, and now you know in, in Latvia, it's uh, not only your hotels have have really good machines, but uh, you see lots of you see you see gyms on the street, you know, right. <laughs> walk on the street, see how you. so. Uh, it's in a certain way that's the that that may be the idea of walking south when people are walking north but the other way the other part of that story is to say you've probably be more successful doing things that other people are not doing mm-hmm. you know, right you, you, maybe what you want to do is sort of um, consultants will do things like that we'll say to you well let's see what What's the what? What's the 90%? You know, let's look at that bell curve and say, here, these are the areas that have really been successful. And so really what you really want to do is say, well, look at the tails of the mm-hmm. bell curve. Say, well, let's look at the ones that people haven't looked at. Or maybe the ones that haven't been successful. Why is that? Right. There's probably a bigger return to that.
0: Yeah, I think what's the old joke, <clears throat> right? Invert, always invert, right? I always think of uh, the nation of Bhutan. Um, From a tourism perspective, as I understand the story, I I haven't, um, I can't confirm this firsthand, but I understand the story. Bhutan was trying to figure out how do we, you know, how do we appeal more on the tourist market? And so they hired consultants and this consultant said, um, you know, well, you need to go ahead and make it easier for people to come and uh, make, build more tourist infrastructure so you can have more people come. But Mm -hmm. they looked at it and they decided, you know what, we're going to go in the exact opposite direction. And so Bhutan is, the kingdom of Bhutan is incredibly difficult to get into. Everyone everyone has to get a visa. Um, You can't come in without a tour. You have to book a tour guide. You have to commit, I think a minimum tour is $250 a day uh, for person. And so all the tourism is high end. Mm -hmm. And so what they have done is built this this tourist infrastructure that's all very high end, very high dollar, tourist infrastructure, but it's allowing the the kingdom of Bhutan to be a very exotic and unique unique destination. And when travelers go there, they find, hey, we're not overloaded with $1 t-shirts and people hawking cheap stuff to us. This is a really beautiful, amazing tourist experience that we're having, but Mm -hmm. it's because Bhutan chose to go to the opposite end. And so, as you say, in a world in which Uh, You can order your food so easily through an app, and it'll show up a few minutes later. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden now, having a nice experience in a cafe becomes that much more powerful. Um, It's not to say you can't get wealthy selling food through an app. You can. But you can always look and say, all right, if the market is going this way, can I serve that market? Or maybe I can go the other way and find a market that I can serve effectively.
1: Well, I'll tell you another another little anecdote from our past, which... Which is one of these little little anecdotes, anecdotes that you use to live by they they get a little bit more sort of fairy taleish as you think about them. but uh, it, when we started mail order, um we had this consultant who was you know was the fellow who was doing the it was a company that did that that sent out flyers and had and had mailing lists and stuff like that because there was a whole world out there of, of a ma- mail order prior to. Prior to online e-commerce, and um, so so you know so we started to talk about well you know which which coffee products would be best and where they should be and let's look at where everything is and what people what what people are buying and 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 you know and and let's look at what's the most popular stuff and and look at the different areas and and he said you know wait a second all you guys need is one suburb of St Louis to sell your whole product. So, why don't, why don't you just think about uh, being being sharpshooters rather than than uh, than dropping Adam Bobson things? Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was right. That's a very it's you know you want to do your own thing and you want to be, you know you want to be an entrepreneur and be successful. You don't have to. You don't have to be Bill Gates. Right. You, know, you just have to be who you are and maximize who you
0: are. I love it. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, is there anything you'd like to promote as we go? Obviously, the Café Brit is there. Anyone who goes through a, an airport in Latin America can enjoy some Café Brit. No, I'm fine. Yeah, any not. other products or, or, or projects that you'd like to share with my audience about what you're working on right now?
1: Well, I'm working on a whole series of, of circular economy ones. Actually, the coolest thing we're doing, the coolest thing that I'm involved in as a as a minority shareholder is is a company that uh, that collects used oil that is used lubricant. It's when you change lubricant in your mm-hmm. car, um, most of it gets thrown away or burned mm-hmm. ends up being ends up being carbon mm-hmm. and, and and actually, there are processes that you can re-refine that lubricant and get out of the hundred percent lubricant, you get eighty percent wow. of uh, of base oil, which you can then just add additives to, and then you have lubricant again. Right. And the other twenty percent is asphalt. Wow. So, you know, so that where so that so that what used to be just thrown into the rivers or burned, actually just becomes something that can be reused.
0: I love it. I am convinced that thirty years from now, I don't maybe it's thirty years, fifty years. I don't know. But I am convinced that over the next couple of decades, to your point about circular economy, as you, as you say, we're going to solve so many of these problems in the next couple of decades. Um, so many items of pollution. Um, just yesterday, a couple of days ago, I saw this amazing video of this young Kenyan engineer. And she had invented and is working on perfecting a process of turning plastic garbage into bricks. And she had created these really high-quality plastic bricks Mm -hmm. with a very simple thing. And she spent years working on it. But when you can go into a nation like Kenya or Costa Rica or anywhere and take thou that plastic... Uh, and even though Kenya now bans plastic bags, but they're still mm-hmm. it's just everywhere, take that plastic and turn it into high-quality bricks for pavers, high-quality bricks for building. It's phenomenal. So whether it's lubricants or, or really anything, I'm convinced a few decades from now we're going to see uh, a massive transformation um, where a lot of these lines of waste are going to be cut off. And much of the waste that is there um, already mm-hmm. is going to be um Upcycled, and and we're going to figure out how to use it more effectively because whenever there's a resource like that, someone's going to find a way to use it.
1: Yeah, I was good. You just reminded me of something that I think is really cool that we, that I'm, I'm involved in a national parks NGO. And one, one of the things that we do is we replace uh, the um, some of the the railings and the you know the, the sort of the the wooden lookouts that you that you use which which in the pro in the tropics don't last very long mm-hmm. and we replace them with plastic wood and plastic wood is wood looks like wood acts like wood but it's made out of the caps of awesome. of all and we collect caps all over the country you probably yeah. have see even these things right you know, we, we collect we collect the pla- the plastic caps, and you can use, you can also use things like there's uh, there's other very strange things like hospitals, uh, in emergency in um, in operating rooms. You know the the people use plastic, Gallows, aprons and things, right. and they use only use them once. They right. throw them out. Right. Well, you can turn that into wood. Awesome. So there's national parks in Costa Rica that have lookouts that's made perfect. out of plastic wood.
0: Perfect yeah i i we, human human engineering all of these problems are solvable i mean even every ecological problem like all of these things are solvable but it takes smart men and women to buckle down and do the work and uh, find it so steve thank you for coming on the show today i really appreciate no, yeah, it it was,
1: it was fun thank you